Welcome to episode 114 of the Search with Canada podcast, recorded on Friday the 4th of June 2021. My name is Mark Williams-Cook, and today's podcast is going to be slightly longer than usual, and it's going to be an interview I had with another very respected chap in the e-commerce realm called Nathan Lomax, and we're going to be talking all about SEO in e-commerce, especially for brands that are just kicking off in this space. Before we begin, I would love to tell you all about Sitebulb, who very kindly have sponsored this podcast for quite a while now. Sitebulb is a desktop-based SEO auditing tool for Windows and Mac. It's something I've used for many years now. We've used it in the agency for a long time, and it's one of my favorite SEO tools. Um, if you've listened to lots of previous episodes, you'll know that's true. And it's I'm not just saying that because they're currently sponsoring me to say it, but it, it's a tool I really enjoy promoting. I, I show it to people whenever I teach them SEO. And as I said, I use it myself pretty much on every single uh, client at some point. There's so many features that make Sitebulb a particularly great tool. And I normally talk about how Sitebulb is really great for beginners um, because it, it gives a lot of um, kind of diagnostics behind the data it's picking up and explains the issues and they've got a lot of content around that. But from a more techie end, it's so incredibly configurable as well. So if you delve into the settings of Sitebulb, you can micromanage and like globally ignore certain types of report um, audit notification so if you know you've got a particular build or template where it's going to keep kicking up this particular error and you don't want that because you want to take advantage of the fact that Sitebulb can track the differences between different audits and you don't want this kind of noise in the way, you can actually do that. It's really, really good. If you haven't checked it out, they've got a special trial for Search with Canda listeners, which means you get a 60-day trial. Uh, it's free. You don't need a credit card or anything like that. And you can get this by going to sitebulb.com but then go to forward slash SWC and you'll get that trial. As I said, it's completely free, uh, no obligation, do give it a go. So you're about to hear now a recording I had this week between myself and Nathan Lomax of Quickfire Digital. Quickfire Digital are an agency that specialise in e-commerce website builds, that's kind of their world. And I've worked with them quite a few times now in terms of SEO projects and helping get their tech SEO up to speed and helping consult with some of their clients for SEO. And one of the things Nathan wanted to talk to me about was brands that are just getting started uh, in e-commerce and really, you know, SEO, this is their first encounter of it. I think it's a really great chat because he covers questions that maybe I kind of wouldn't have thought of myself. Um, and it's really useful to get that outside lens, that outside view in on SEO and e-commerce. So it may not be one if you are a really experienced SEO, you're doing e-commerce, um, or it, it might be for you, you might disagree. I, I go off on a little bit of a tangent on some of my thoughts about kind of entities and the, the future of Google and SEO. Um, so maybe it will make you mad if you disagree with me, uh, but definitely something in there if you're in-house e-com SEO, especially maybe if you're a business owner, marketing manager for an e-com site. So really hope you enjoy it. This is myself and Nathan Lomax from Quickfire Digital. So this morning, we're going to be talking about SEO for e-commerce brands. And actually, on the journey we've been in in the last 18 months, more and more retailers are coming to us asking about the importance of SEO as they get drawn towards the Google shoppings of the world, uh, Instagram shopping, all this good stuff. But actually, they seem to be forgetting the core principles of SEO. So today seemed the perfect opportunity to dive back into that and to give people a reminder of the importance of SEO, particularly with the upcoming Core Web Vitals update. And so, Mark, just starting us off, for those that are joining and have questions, please feel free to ask as we go. Just jump straight in and I'll do my best to answer them. For those that are watching this on recorded, actually, if you see something you're unsure of or you have a question, reach out to us and we'll do our best to answer that. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks time to do this all again. So, Mark, let's start when we talk about SEO and we talk about why brands should be taking SEO so seriously. Where to begin? Why is SEO so important these days? And why should brands really put it at the top of their agenda? 
Well, you mentioned earlier things like, you know, Instagram ads and, and shopping ads. So the first thing I just want to say is, you know, it's not a, it's not an or proposition. You know, SEO does need to be part of the mix. The things for me that differentiate it from uh, things like social ads or, or you know, um, any kind of display ads is the fact that it's search-based. And why that's so important is it's the only type of marketing where you know exactly what the person wants because you know the search term, the targeting, and probably even more importantly than that, you're getting them at the, exactly the right time. So all the other kind of generally types of marketing are targeted through, it might be like demographics or interests, and you're just hoping you get the message out at the right time or you're, you know, you're building awareness, whereas SEO puts you in direct contact with something marketers have wanted for decades, which is this, you know, this is someone they want this thing right now. And, and actually on top of that, um, it, there's, there's a whole other of interest, you know, set of interesting reasons. So one um, study by also Ofcom every year do this study for media attitudes in, in adults. And the last, I think it's three years, we've seen really similar results, which is that around 50% of adults in the UK can't identify what is a Google ad and what isn't. Um, so it, even even know, still with a giant ad text even, placed beside it. Yeah, well, the, the giant ad text has kind of got, I think, a bit more camouflaged over the years. So yeah. Um, you know, it's really important to be visible. And there's lots of other studies showing as well that um, consumers really trust the sites and brands that Google ranks. So if you think when you're making a purchase, maybe from a company you haven't heard of, you might Google their name, reviews, or their name, you know, are they trustworthy? Is it a scam? You're using Google to do all of that other research in place of you know, asking a friend or something like that. So actually, not just ranking for, you know, the specific thing that you want people to buy your service or your product, but all those other kind of terms that are along that research path are part of SEO and, and really important as well. And actually, if someone asked me that question about, you know, why should we take SEO seriously? Normally, I just ask them to explain the last journey they had online where they bought something or made a purchase. And and it normally starts with a search. So they answer their own question. And so, Mark, should retailers approach their SEO strategy different to, say, if you're in the B2B space? Well, I think there's different things to focus on if you're looking at e-commerce. So one that jumps to mind is image SEO. So when we talk about SEO, it's certainly nowadays more than the 10 blue links right so maybe a decade ago you'd do a search on google and generally you would just get a result with 10 links to websites and nowadays we get featured snippets we get maps we get shopping results we get top stories and one of the interesting things i've noticed when i've worked in e-commerce for seo is a lot of people actually use google images to look for products especially things like fashion so they might type something like i don't know um men's red trainers because they want a pair of red trainers right but then at, rather than going to a website they jump across to images and then they just scroll through images and it makes sense right because shopping's like a, a visual experience um and then they'll actually choose like a, an image and then go to the website from there so there's a whole set of things you can do as a retailer to enhance how well you rank in google images so things like for instance uh, not using stock imagery is one because you'll notice in google images you rarely get the same image appearing multiple times so if you use stock imagery it means that pretty much only one person using that imagery is going to rank for that term um, so having your own photography increases your chances of ranking there's other things as well um, so it used to only be like a paid ads thing but that's with Google Merchant Center, which is you can provide Google with a feed for your products. So it gives uh, Google direct information about the product name, the price, if it's in stock, pictures, description. And actually, you don't necessarily have to pay anymore to get those listings. So Google's integrated it with their organic, their free results. If you've got that um, product feed, you can actually get free clicks now. So Google 
Um, I think to try and position themselves against Amazon because they want to basically bolster their inventory and they haven't got enough people necessarily willing to pay. Um, they're, they're allowing people in organically where there's gaps for those, those product feeds. So that's something that a lot of people miss now, um, even if they're not doing paid ads, which is setting up this, this product feeds. And, and generally, um, I think SEO is just a motivator for good behavior. Um, so if you built an e-commerce website and you were just thinking about, I'd say like selfishly, just thinking about we want to sell products, right? So you'd make your categories, you make your product pages and that's it. And then normally when it, it happens in a in a roundabout way that people then say, oh, well, we need some kind of, I don't know, like blog post or something to, to rank in Google, right? And then this leads you on this conversation about what I said earlier, which is that earlier in the purchase funnel research that people do and actually how can we provide uh, more value to our visitors so we're selling this product do we want to give them comparisons or how to use it how to set it up or how to look after it and they're the kind of things that help you rank so they're like a motivator for you to do good things for the user so that there i think the kind of three things that um, and there are many but three core things that i think are different for e-commerce seo Mark, in terms of schema markup, this is another term that Turbo's banded around. Just tell us a little bit more about the importance of schema markup and how retailers can go about embracing schema within their own site. Yeah, so schema for those that haven't encountered it, and there's no reason really you should unless you're kind of involved in, in web or SEO. Schema is a way essentially to label your data for search engines. Um, so up until kind of schema was a thing, search engines just have to take the great unwashed internet and all of the unstructured data and text and basically just use these algorithms to try and work out what on earth you're writing about. You know, there's no, when it when Google crawls and looks at a website, it doesn't know it's, you know, off the bat a website that sells, you know, say running gear. It kind of try, it has to try and work that out. And it has to, when someone does a query about, um, you know, uh, how does my gait affect my running or something, Google has to try and work out, okay, has this page got the answer to that question? So schema gives you a way to explicitly label this data. So using that example, there is something called FAQ schema, frequently asked question schema, where you can say, you can label this data saying this is the question and this is the answer to that question. Um, so you're, re you're removing any of that kind of gray area that search engines have to work out themselves. And the same, again, specifically with e-commerce, you can provide information about products as to whether they're in stock, um, the brand, for instance, the, um, the, the weight, the price, and that can be pulled through sometimes in search engine result pages. So you get this again, like rich data coming through. So schema, um, I think is really important because it's it's the basis, I think, of how Google is developing, which is really to become a knowledge engine. So Google wants to move away from showing lists of search results to just answering questions. And they're doing that and without going too deeply into it, um, with what's called an entity-based approach, which is they're trying to work out what things are and then what those the connections between the things are as well. Um, I think I'll stop there before we go, <laughs> we go sort of too deep into that. No, I love that. I'm just thinking in terms of these kind of conversations, we often talk about Google as the only search tool, but we neglect the Bings and the other search engines of the world. Do the same principles apply with things like schema? Actually, if you do your schema, for Google, it applies on all search engines? Yeah, so generally, um, I think there's a divide between the, I'd say the Western world and the Eastern world in terms of SEO. So in the West, we've got mainly search engines like Google, like Bing, uh, like Yahoo, DuckDuckGo. And generally they all follow the same principles. Um, Google tends to lead the way on those standards and then other search engines adopt them. Um, for other search engines, like so in China, Beidou, it's the biggest search engine. Uh, in Russia, um, you've got Yandex. They actually have slightly different principles. So Yandex will 
um, massively favor .ru domains. They look at how many conversions complete on a site to help rank it. Some of those search engines still use a keyword um, keywords meta tag, which none really of the major um, kind of Western search engines do. So I'd say it's only really a consideration about should we be doing things differently if you're operating in those markets. If you're operating kind of, you know, in UK, Europe, America, Australia, um, I would kind of take a Google first approach. Um, you know, Bing's got some market share. And certainly from a paid point of view, it's really worth um, kind of targeting that. But it's really Google principles and everyone else kind of toes the line. So, Mark, if you say about Google keyword work, essentially, uh, yeah, keywords may be drifting away from what it once was. Actually, what are the really core important metrics we look at when we're looking at on-page SEO in, in kind of, yeah, in isolation? Yeah, so key, keyword research is a really interesting um, topic because we touched on this kind of entity thing and I try and sometimes frame it or describe it as um as intense research now and there's a there's a few reasons for this so firstly I'd, I'd just headline and say keyword research is still really really useful um but it can be especially if you look at keyword volumes it can be a bit of a red herring right and I'll, I'll explain why so I think previously and when i say previously i'm now talking about several years ago kind of the optimal thing to do was look at keyword volumes and try and target generally the higher keyword volumes and make individual pages for most individual key phrase searches okay and that was because how search engines were analyzing text on a page was still pretty basic and pretty much the search engine was just like, well, this thing seems to be the nearest match, so I'm going to rank that. So things have changed massively um, since then in terms of how search engines analyze text and how they um, determine what a page is about. So generally speaking now, if you have a bunch of related topics, um, so say say there was, say you're right, you sell car parts and you were writing an article about, you know, um, servicing your engine, you might, it would make sense to do that maybe as one long article broken down into pieces, whereas before it would have made sense to do like 10 separate articles. So what we're now learning from this kind of intense intent based approach is to, to build out a page as essentially as a, as a user would like it. So there we, we focus a lot more on long tail key phrases. So we still target these um, kind of head terms, if you like, but we have loads of data available now through uh, sites like answer the public and also ask.com around things like people also ask data, which are these hundreds and hundreds of search terms that if you put them into a keyword volume tool, it will say they have zero search volume or less than 20. And it's a, it's a big mistake to just discard them because they're still showing and there's a reason they're showing and it's that that combination of words, yes, in that phrase might have 15 searches a month. But what it's important to realize is there's another 100 ways to search for that exact question with the words in a slightly different order or with an addition of a word that mean actually it's got a few hundred searches a month and they're all the same intent. So you don't need to you know, make loads of pages. You just need one page that answers that intent and Generally, now Google is smart enough to rank that page for that whole kind of subset of queries. So, yes, when it comes to keyword research, I look at volumes, especially when we're building sites, when we're doing um, link architecture and working out what categories should be, because this is like broadly saying, OK, there's lots of people looking for this. And it's useful to to see which words people actually use, because English is a complex language. Right. And sometimes there's different phrases people use, even regionally. So understanding that's important when it actually comes down to content. Um, I really go and use these kind of deep dive tools and we'll produce content briefs. And, you know, we will actually just lean into the keyword research to help guide us. But we're certainly not it's not dictated just by that. Yeah, that makes sense. Mark, let's indulge in a little bit of role play. 
So if I'm the client, your mark, I come to you and say, look, I've got an e-commerce brand. We're selling gym wear. We've got some pretty hefty goals here. We think SEO is going to form a part, an important part of our kind of marketing mix. What's the first thing that we would do? Uh, the, well, the first thing I always do is set an expectation that SEO is a long-term thing, right? So especially with, um, you know, new businesses, new businesses tend to kind of have aggressive, you know, growth targets, especially if they're funded. Um, and we just have that conversation, you know, if someone's like, okay, we're doing SEO and in three months we need, you know, you can stop conversation there basically. If it, especially if it's a new site, you need to be taking a kind of over a 12 month view as in longer than 12 months for SEO. Um, with that in mind, there are lots of things to take into account. So the, the very first thing is the technical foundation for the site. You know, if you're building a, a new site, by technical foundation, I mean that the site is as easy for search engines to crawl and index as possible. Um, so generally there'll be there, there'll be some issues or opportunities like you mentioned schema so schema is something i'd label like as an opportunity so it's not an issue if you don't have it it doesn't cause a problem but it's an untapped opportunity um lots of modern frameworks that rely on javascript cause issues so and that's from this technology side search engines have trouble crawling and indexing and exploring sites that are very javascript heavy so I would that would be the first step is reviewing do we have a good base to build on because the last thing you want to do is invest maybe tens of thousands of pounds in a site go to do seo and then have someone say to you actually well we need to redo this part right because it's expensive the the next step is to draw out a strategy and that requires discussing you know what are the actual targets and what resources do you have and by resources i mean how much time is available, how much runway have we got, how much money is there to invest, what internal skills do you have? So you need to know what can you do internally and what needs outsourcing. And then map out um, you know, your competitors, the market, are there any gaps, um, and what your competitors are doing um, in SEO. Because the SEO isn't like a static target. It's like I always describe it as like a never-ending like marathon type race. You know, you're joining in, you've got to catch up with people. And if you want to project how long that's going to take, you've got to work out how fast everyone else is running so you can run slightly faster and how far ahead they are. Because you know you're starting behind people that are already ranking. Once you've got all of those um, kind of points of information, you can draw out your strategy, which is essentially, you know, we're going to achieve this by with this approach. And then that filters down to a plan. And then the plan is actually who is going to do what and by when. And it may be that, you know, you draw up this grand strategy and you realize when you overlay your time, money and resources that actually you can't do all those things, which is, you know, which is fine and very common. So then it's about focusing on what is the most effective thing we can do. And with all that technical stuff in place, a lot of um, the just SEO focused stuff will come down to, you know, providing good content, attracting links to the site, and that overlaps with a lot of other disciplines, um, which is why it's important to have this strategic plan because there's lots of other ways that other people can contribute to that. Um, but that's that's where I'd start. You know, the wrong place to start is to kind of say, here's our site, do the SEO, <laughs> you know, um, which again is common and it's, you know, that's 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 what we're here for to, to kind of guide people through that process and let them know where it plugs into everything else. Mark, we talked a couple of times there about benchmarking uh, and ranking. In terms of the technical foundations, is there a tool that you would recommend so users can go and type in their web address and just see what those missed opportunities may be in terms of, oh, we don't have schema or we don't have this? Because I guess many retailers may be blissfully unaware of the opportunities that they're missing. Mm. It's, it's a difficult one um, because all tools require some level of skill and understanding to take the results in, in context. I mean, the one I'd recommend that I think is the easiest to use is called Sitebulb, um, which is at sitebulb.com. They have a free trial that you can download. Uh, that will run an audit of your site. And what it does is, apart from kind of collecting the data, it will try and um, actually diagnose any potential issues. And it's really good at explaining 
kind of why they're issues and it tries to prioritize them for you. Now, like with all tools, it's quite possible that it 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 will miss something major or it will flag false positives. Um, and all of that information as well has to be put in context to, you know, your own site, your own targets. Um, you know, when we do an audit on a site, we'll probably use five or six different tools. And that's really just to get a sense for it. But a lot of the work's actually done manually. Um, you know, there's you, most people would have received emails kind of offering them free SEO audits, which are just pumped out from these tools. Um, and generally they're not, you know, worth the PDF pixels there. <laughs> yeah. No, fair. In terms of competitor analysis, uh, Marcus, another thing you mentioned there is Sitebulb a tool that allows you to do that competitor research as well, or is there a separate tool to to do that? Yeah, no, Sitebulb just looks at your own site, so that's kind of identifying opportunities um, in there. Now, competitor research is is again a tricky one. So, the I guess the go to platform for a lot of people is SEMrush, um, which does cost money. Um, it will give you an idea of things like what your competitors um, rank for um, and it will give you a rough idea of who ranks for the keywords you want to. And the, the issue with all of these tools is you do have to take them with a fairly large pinch of salt. So sometimes they're accurate and sometimes they're really far out <laughs> now. Well, while the defenders will say, yeah, but in these cases, it's really accurate. I think it's worth pointing out if you don't know if the data you're looking at is inaccurate or accurate, you have to treat it as inaccurate. So I posted an example uh, last, I think it was last week um, of, of from SEMrush where I had access to the client's actual data and SEMrush had said that they had three times their search traffic and we're talking into the hundreds of thousands of visitors, right? And I was like, oh, wow, that looks really good. And I logged in, looked at their search console and their analytics. And unfortunately, that hadn't actually happened. It was just completely uh, flat, which was what I expected because they weren't really doing any SEO. And I just posted this as an example saying, you know, if you, if you were doing competitive research on that website and you looked at it, you were like, oh, wow, you know, what have they, they must be really going at it because they've 3x their traffic, but they actually hadn't. So, you know, no tool unless you've got direct access is going to give you accurate information, but it's it's useful as a guide. Um, if you have like an SEO specialist work for you, they'll get more into that competitor research. So the type of things I would do is once I've identified the main competitors, I would then run specific tools for specific things like Majestic or Ahrefs are two tools that we use to look at backlink profiles, which is who links to these websites. And the reason we want to look at that is we'll see what kind of digital PR they're doing, what kind of deals they're making with other websites, what kind of content they're posting. Um, and we'll get a feel for essentially how hard they're pushing their SEO. And that's more of a guide for me um, about how competitive it's going to be. I've never used um, keyword difficulty metrics personally. Um, again, I've you can compare SEMrush and Ahrefs two of the largest SEO tools, same keyword. One will say very difficult, another will say very easy. So I go on experience and using these other tools and like, I guess it's not common sense, it's specialist sense um, on how difficult that's going to be. Mark, I appreciate you guys are incredibly humble and I know that the Candle team have been working very hard behind the scenes on their own suite of tools and products and one that's coming out, um, I was keen to pick your brains on. You created something that was like an also our style uh, platform. Do you mind just sharing a little bit about that if it's ready to go so that retailers listening can go and check it out? Yeah, so it's it's launching hopefully later this month. So we ran a public beta for almost a year. Um, and the tool is at alsoasked.com. And that tool is if you for around 50% of any searches that happen in Google, you'll see there's a little box that says people also ask, and it will list normally four or five questions that are related to that search term. And if you click on one of those questions, it will then concertina out and give you another three or four questions related to that. Um, that is a goldmine of information about um, what people are searching for, but also what Google expects, 
which I think a lot of people miss. So if I do a search term and Google knows, well, people actually commonly ask these four other questions. It's a really good hint for, well, if you answer those four questions on one page, Google knows that people ask them and then you're seen as a really great source of information. So we made this tool where you can pop in any key phrase, you can set to country and a language and it'll go away and it'll mine that data for you and it'll put it into like a, a mind map kind of thing. So it'll say, here's your search term, here are the four questions related to that. And then here are the four questions related to each of those. And then a final step of here are the four or five related to each of those. So actually you end up with sort of 60, 70, 80 questions for one key phrase. It's a really helpful tool for content writers if you need a little bit of inspiration. It's really helpful for SEOs if they want to know what questions people have about their brands, their products, or an article they're writing, um, even if you're doing PPC as well. To under, It's about understanding that intent. Um, and it's a really good way to, to unlock that. You can actually then download the data into CSV, plug it into any other tools that you've got like really neat stuff with things like sentiment analysis. Um, so you could, for instance, track your brand over time, see what questions are asking. And, you know, as you build your brand from people asking, is it a scam to why the price is so good? Um, hopefully over the years, that kind of thing. Mate, that's perfect. So you touched a little bit there around international SEO. If you're a UK retailer looking to dip your toes into, say, the European market, how can they go about optimizing their products and category pages, et cetera, for international search as opposed to just UK search? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so don't just run it through a translator. Would be an automatic <laughs> translator would be my first um, kind of thing, you know. I've seen sites that have, you know, they built a UK version and then they stick an auto translate on and we talk to them about internationalization and they say, well, you know, people don't really buy from Germany, so we don't think it's worth it. And then when you actually look at it or get a German to read it, it's like, no, they're not buying from Germany because the translation's crap and the prices, you know, aren't in euros and, and whatever. So there's a, there's a few things to do from, from a technical point of view. Um, there's a whole bunch of things you can do. There is a special tag that search engines use called hreflang. And what that does is it allows you to essentially pair up or not pair up, match up all of the different language and region versions of a page. So this is particularly important. For instance, if you are selling in Australia, in the US and the UK, you are going to have three separate pages there because one's in US dollars, one's in Australian dollars, one's in sterling. Um, you're going to have to, you know, do the barbaric thing and remove all the U's from the words for the American version. Um, it's probably going to be written differently as well. So apart from um, translation, the UK US thing is a really interesting um, kind of point on localization. So if you've been to the States and you watch TV adverts there compared to the UK, you'll realize there's like a night and day difference in how people are sold to and how they're spoken to and their expectations and the culture is very different. So you, it's not enough just to say, well, oh, our, our UK page is in English. US is English as well. So it's fine. You need to really get it rewritten for the US market. Okay, and the same obviously applies. This is why I was talking about automatic translation. If you're having something done from English to French or Spanish or German, it's not enough just to have it one to one translated. You've got to again think about that intent because you know someone in Spain may use a different set of words to describe something. Um, things may not translate well um, culturally there may be different types of search terms happen. So there's, there's a translation aspect, there's a localization aspect. And then going, there's a technical aspect, which is going back to what I said about this hreflang thing. And the, the idea of this hreflang thing, particularly with taking our example of US, UK, Australia, is if you've got three pages selling a product, which are not identical, but very close, it becomes quite tricky for Google to work out actually which one should I rank? Because it's not clear that this page is English, but it's for the US. This page is English, but it's for Australia. So you can actually label them up and basically say, okay, this is English US, this is English UK, this is English Australia. So Google then knows, okay, the searcher is in Australia, I need to show them this version. And it also goes uh, one really helpful step forward, which is 
say your UK version of the page is really popular, gets lots of links and Google saying, okay, this is a good page. If you use this hreflang tag to say, well, this is the US version and this is the Australian version, that equity that you've built is kind of shared between all of those pages and you tend to see all of those pages rank better. The last technical point from, you know, it touches on SEO, but it's really more of a usability thing is, you know, you mentioned Core Web Vitals earlier. So Core Web Vitals um, is to do with performance, um, not necessarily speed, although speed is is one aspect. And the interesting thing about Core Web Vitals and, and kind of website performance in general is there's no objective measure about what is good and what is bad without the context of the user visiting the site. And what I mean by that is if you build your site and the audience is in the UK and you run all your core vitals checks and you look in search console and you're all green and you say, brilliant, our site performs really well. You then open an international store in maybe a country that's much more rural and has much slower average internet connection speeds. What you'll then find when you look at Search Console is your Core Web Vitals performance is all red and you haven't changed anything on your site. It's that the average connection speed of those people is a lot slower. So it might be to have an acceptable performance for people in that region, you need to make that region like a lighter version of your site. Okay. And that's about then technical localization. So there's actually a whole set of layers of things you can do for internationalization, but the main ones are translation, of course, localization, super important. Um, the the marking up of the different pages with hreflang, especially, again, important for countries like Switzerland, where you can't just have the Swiss version because there's people speaking Swiss, German, or reading German, Italian, French, so you can label up the different versions. And then this other level of technical optimization, if you want to go that far around localized performance. But yeah, there's there's loads you can do. Mark, a couple of questions coming off the back of that. The first is around search terms overseas. When people are looking to see search volumes, okay, is my product even viable to sell it in France, for example? Do you still use the Google keyword tool or do you use something else to identify the traffic volumes out in France or Switzerland or wherever? Yeah. If you just want to do like a quick comparison, you can actually use tools like Google Trends um, because you can you can filter that by country and you can quickly just you can then see, OK, well, here's the English search term. Here's maybe the French version. Oh, the French version has got 75 percent of the volume of, of the the English version. But yes, I would use the same tools for assuming the search engine is the same. Obviously, I wouldn't use uh, Google search estimates for maybe Russia, like I said, because um, you need to know what's going on in in, in Yandex there. And Yandex um, has its own tool, Mark? Yeah, Yandex, so Yandex is an interesting one. So if I was doing SEO for Yandex, there are people that specialize in that. Um, and that's what I would always do. So if we, the few, so I've dealt with a few Russian migrations, technical stuff, um, but for the SEO, I'll put them onto a Yandex specialist. The same with uh, Beidou. So Beidou, um, even to get like a um, Beidou kind of webmaster account um, and and to show ads there, for instance, you need like a Chinese national and all the interface is in Chinese. So you really, it's good to have someone specialized in those search engines. Uh, but yeah, Google Trends is a good shout. Perfect, thank you. You talked also about Google Search Console. And again, many retailers perhaps aren't using Search Console to the, the the kind of max of what it can do just as a quick 20 second summary what can retailers or any kind of seo do within the google search console that perhaps they're not aware of so google search console is a free um i'd say like diagnostic tool provided by google you set it up um and it will give you a whole range of information that's, that's super useful everything from um what search terms you're ranking for, your average positions, how many clicks you've had. And this is more accurate than the data you'll get out of analytics, right? So analytics counts users and sessions. And you can lose users and sessions for all kinds of reasons with, you know, uh, browser blocking and all sorts. This is counting the actual click from the search result, which is really helpful. More importantly than that, um, 
it highlights any errors Google encounters or thinks it encounters. So if you've got crawl errors, if you've got pages timing out, server errors, broken links, um, malware, um, if your site's not mobile friendly, the core web vitals performance, it's, it's all in there. And the reason it's so important is all of these other tools are using uh, what are called generally like compound metrics. So essentially maths that they've come up with to try and reflect things that are happening um, that Google's using, but this is direct information from Google that they are using. You know, if they think your site errors lots, um, then it's safe to say, you know, whatever impact that's going to have, it will have. If your Core Web Vitals in Search Console is bad, it doesn't matter what any other tool says, it's bad because that's what Google's making the judgment on. So that's like the first thing I set up, um, you know, and it's free and you can integrate it with analytics. There's no reason anyone shouldn't have it. Oh, perfect. Now, we hear the phrase topical authority used quite a lot within SEO. And within the world of entrepreneurship, personal brand has really kicked off as well. Why is topical authority so important for retailers? Yeah, um, I guess it's almost like why you, you know, why did you choose to talk to me about SEO? Um, because hopefully, because you consider me like a topical authority on SEO, right? Sure. So you're like, um, you know, I'm going to talk to Mark about this and just just about how, you know, if you've got any problem, maybe like I've got a particular friend that if I have a problem with my car, right, and I go, I always go and speak to them first. I don't ask someone, someone that, you know, isn't a topical authority on cars, in my opinion, they're the person I know that, that knows most about cars, right? So when it comes to ranking web pages, Google, one of the models that Google uses um, and people talk about is this, can you become a topical authority on something? Which is rather than Google just being like, oh, okay, this, this one website has this one guide about running on, so I'm going to rank them for whatever this article's about. If you've got a whole collection of articles um, about that subject that are all linked together, you've kind of your, Google's like it's, it's Google's way of like seeing into like your website's brain and saying, okay, well, yeah, this 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 website, this entity seems to know a lot about this topic. So you have this kind of abstract idea of topical authority, even if it's not in that that one page. And there's lots of ways that this this is expressed, and there's loads of really interesting patents that Google has. Uh, and one caveat I'd say is just because Google has a patent for something doesn't necessarily mean they are using it. They've just, they have a patent for it. Um, and they did a trial run uh, several years ago now on authorship where you could mark up who the author was that wrote um, an article. And actually now that, that got deprecated, but you can still do it with schema, right? So you can say, this is a web page. Uh, the web page belongs to this website that belongs to this company and it was written by this person, okay? And when you look at Google Paintings, you'll see that they have technology now that can do things like identify individual people by their writing style. So when it sees the a piece of text, it can start work, working out even if the author isn't specified who wrote it. Um, even for audio, they have audio fingerprinting so they can identify individuals based on their voice. And as you've probably seen now, Google is indexing podcasts and it can jump you like to the right part of a YouTube video. So that live transcription is all happening. So where we're going, I think, with topical authority. So the kind of old school topical authority is basically, you know, if you want to if you want to rank for stuff, you need to show you're a specialist. And generally that was um, done through your website, through having lots of good content on the subject, getting it linked to by other sources. That's how you become authority, right? When people start referring to you. I think where we're going with it is it's going to pivot slightly to become individuals. So Google is going to recognize and identify who individuals are. And this is why um, there's a lot of stuff written about EAT for Google, which is this expertise, authority, and trust. And this talks about um, things like having a visible author name on who wrote this and being able to check out who that person is. So we're working with um, a website at the moment that deals in kind of the medical supply area and they had some blog posts and they were written by admin. 
you know, and I, I said, you know, if I'm a user and I arrive on this site and I'm reading this information, this is important information, right? Because it's got anything to do with medical stuff is, you know, it's important, it's correct. But it's written by someone called admin. I immediately don't trust it as much. Whereas if it's written by someone and I can see, you know, for instance, okay, they're, they're a qualified first aid instructor and they've written on these 20 other websites, then I start to to um to trust that more and there that is the kind of thing that's going to be mirrored by search engines i think more and more um but the the general concept is you know you can't just chuck you know a page about a topic up on your website randomly and expect it to rank you know you earn that over time like how my friend has earned my trust about asking me you know or having me pester him every time something goes wrong with my car <laughs> Very good. I'm curious to know about kind of size guides and brochures and things like that for retailers where perhaps they're external PDFs. How do we get those indexed and ranked as opposed to static content on a web page? Yeah. So actually PDFs um, have have no problem being indexed and ranked. Googlebot um, can read PDFs and it actually it's a it's a protocol that will convert it to HTML anyway. So even things like hyperlinks inside PDFs work and absolutely fine and, and pass link equity. The, the common issues that you get, well, well my bugbear personally with, with PDFs, firstly, is PDFs aren't mobile friendly, right? PDFs are a pain to, to read on mobile. You're like pinching and zooming and it's like, ugh. So you get this thing where sometimes you have the content repeated on the site and then in a PDF. And then you've got an issue of Google's trying to pick which one should I rank? You know, should I rank the web page or should I rank the PDF? If you're going to do that, generally, I would try and hide the PDF from Google and just have the um, web page there and people can download the PDF if they like. Um, you know, my discussion I always have with clients is why does it need to be a PDF, basically? Um you know, if you're sending it to someone, they're going to need internet access anyway to download it, right? So why can't they look at a web page um, that works on their mobile as well? Um, there's some arguments around, you know, having gated content. Uh, personally, again, I'm not a fan of gated content, especially now with various um, PECA and GDPR stuff. You're certainly limited with, um, you know, you can't you can't just lock stuff off and be like, you have to join our mailing list if you want this otherwise free content. It just doesn't work like that. I think it annoys people. Um, I don't think it's genuine. And I think you'll get more value having it open, having it indexed and having it rank and having people link to it than, than generally you get from kind of hiding stuff. So yeah, PDFs aren't technically a big issue in terms of search engines. I just think there's better ways to... Um, to do things because you'll make stuff easier for users and you'll probably find you get more traffic anyway when you're a bit more open with that information. And so, Mark, if you had a PDF and you decide actually you want to then showcase it on the site as content, I guess you then remove the PDF and put it all as perhaps a series of blog posts. Or the, the question really is, it do you put it as a page or do you put it as blog posts or do you do a mixture of the two? Um, well, you can, still, you can still have the PDF. You know, if you want a PDF, on the site you can have it and there's certain ways you can just block google from indexing it which is fine because then you get around that kind of duplicate issue um I, you know when we talk about do we have stuff as web pages or blog posts kind of like what what's the difference you know a blog post is just a web page at the end of the day it's just a blog post generally is a um is a web page that's organized by chron chronologically you know, that's all, all a blog is, right? It's just generally categorized chronological um, web pages. So if it is something that I would class as evergreen, which is it's always relevant, like a size guide, then yeah, it wouldn't go on a blog. It would go on a like a static page. Um, it would go on a static page somewhere. But again, generally, if people are, especially if you've got mobile users, just think about the user, like how are they going to be accessing the content? If it is on mobile, PDF probably isn't a good format for them. So yeah, get the information on the site. Why is it not on the website if you want people to read it on a screen? Is 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 my question. Yeah. I think that's still I think it's a hangover from a like a like an old web, all this PDF content that's going around. Yeah. In terms of videos and uh, kind of augmented reality and virtual reality now that's coming into retail more and more, how can retailers in particular optimize these for search? Yeah, so again, video is interesting because 
it's always been a, a technical challenge for search engines to kind of understand video because it couldn't kind of just read it because it's not text. They tend to be large files, so it's very process. Uh, it's very um, kind of process heavy in terms of you know it's large files. It's got to dig through it. But I think we're at the stage now, at least certainly with Google. And uh, I mentioned this earlier. You know, if you upload a video to YouTube, you can opt for automatic um, transcription now, which just shows you. And it's it's actually really good. It's like scary accurate, right? Um, and that shows you the level of understanding they have of the content that's in their video. If you have video on your site, there is video schema. You've got video sitemaps as well, which can hint to Google and other search engines about what that content is. I get a lot of questions about whether we should like host the video ourselves or should we have it on YouTube. Um, and for most people, um, I tell them to put it on YouTube. And the reason for that is, you know, YouTube's the second largest search engine in the UK. Right? If people want specifically want video content, um, they jump straight to YouTube. They don't necessarily do a Google search anymore. They just go to YouTube. Same as a lot of shopping behavior, and it's why Amazon is one of Google's biggest competitors, is they're not doing Google searches. They just go straight to Amazon and search for the thing they want. Um, and then, you know, there's a whole branch of kind of YouTube optimization then, which is is, is fairly basic, but that's more about kind of engagement and, and, and titles. Um, hosting your own um, video content can be challenging, again, for the reasons I said, which is like it's bandwidth heavy. So if you suddenly get a really popular video, you're going to need to make sure you've got the kind of infrastructure server beef to actually serve it up properly. And then you've got to solve all those issues yourself with things like transcriptions. So transcriptions is something we do um, with a lot of audio content. So for instance, our podcast we pay to get that transcribed. So even though search engines or Google could kind of go through and index it, we make it easier, provide the transcription as well from an accessibility point of view, um, especially for the for the podcast. And it gives us the opportunity to do things like internal linking as well. Um, so again, there's a lot you can do with that. With AR and VR, um, that's, that's a hard question. I don't actually think I've got a good... Um, answer for you yet because a lot of that stuff's still in its infancy um i've seen some interesting uses of ar um more to do with uh people like placing products in situ in their room um it was actually a conversation we had with a, a client of ours we did on a pitch which for their e-com site we were talking about um having 3d models of some of the products built so they could then from the product page just turn the camera on and see it in their house um but none of that really is going to be kind of indexed and searchable yet. Um, but it, I think it will be. I think, again, all those new, all these new media types is just, it's like a technical challenge. And, you know, Google's been getting there. It used to just be kind of be text and links, and then it was images. And now we're here with audio and video as well. Mark, what role does social uh, play within an SEO strategy? Because people often see them as separate channels and separate opportunities. Yet once upon a time, social signals was talked about as some kind of contribution towards a ranking factor. And therefore, is social and your visibility on social and your activity on social still important for your SEO strategy? Or actually, are they two very separate things? In terms of and I'll be careful how I word this, right? So in terms of a direct ranking factor in Google's, talking specifically about Google and their core algorithm, I'm comfortable to say that I believe like social signals are not and never have been um, kind of a ranking factor. When Google talks about their core ranking algorithm, that's actually um, still comprising of surprisingly, I think, few things. There is layers on top of this. So there, um, we actually got to see a leak from a load of Google documentation that got published a couple of years ago talking about um, this Twiddler framework, which is essentially loads of little small algorithms that sit on top of this core algorithm that help um, basically improve results. And I think it's, you know, you could wildly speculate as to what happens there. So most interestingly, um, and it causes a lot of debate is about how often a particular search result is clicked on, like as a percentage, right? So there's lots of people saying, well, if you click on your search result lots or lots of people do, it will improve the ranking. And Google's like 
said this is absolutely not in our kind of core ranking like that's not true but then people have done tests and then we've seen sites quickly jump up a few places when they've had thousands of people do that and um, for me this is all part of those little micro algorithms that stick on the top to say to answer the need for maybe okay well a certain maybe website's been in the news so the search intent has flipped just temporarily and google needs to adapt to that um, and we see actually searches um, change seasonally. So Halloween's a really good example. If you now do a search for some Halloween search terms, you'll generally get um, sites about Halloween and the history of Halloween, right? In the couple of weeks running up to Halloween, those same searches will produce e-commerce sites because Google understands that the intent has shifted and people want to buy like landfill plastic stuff for, for Halloween, right? Um, so going back to your question about, about social signals, the, so I think the larger answer is slightly more complicated because we, we spoke about, um, you know, entities and Google certainly wants to understand what a brand is and how trusted a brand is. Um, and they have patents for, and again, I don't, from what I've seen, they don't appear to be active, but looking at how brands, uh, the sentiment, um, what, what their sentiment is online. So how people are talking about them, um, I think the more searches your brand kind of has certainly doesn't hurt because it does establish you as a as an entity online that people um, are, are you know, looking for and is in demand. But social as kind of crossover in terms of channel and strategy is is definitely something to consider. So I actually literally yesterday was talking about some of the digital PR campaigns we're running for our SEO clients. Um, so we've got some really nice coverage recently. Um, of some digital PR work we've done. And I was saying to the team, right, I think what's gonna be worth doing is actually doing some paid social ads for this content because the content's really good. Um, you know, it's got some newspaper coverage, but we can get more bang for our buck if more people see it. And actually we're more likely to get more links if more people see it and more people will share it. So by putting it on social media, although we're not directly you know, improving our ranking because we're running a Facebook ad, what we are doing is exposing it to thousands more people who then might share it, who then might link to it, which then does send the kind of signals that search engines listen to. So there is definitely a, a strategic crossover in those in those channels. Mark, thank you as ever. We've got about six or seven more minutes. I'm going to fire some questions fairly quickly at you to see if we can get to a little bit more. One is around a CMS preference for search. Is there a choice between a Shopify or a WooCommerce or a Magento or a totally different CMS entirely? Does Google or those search consoles or do any search kind of uh, algorithms <clears throat> prefer one CMS to another? No. Thank you. Some, some, some come out of the box better than others, but it's not specific because it, it's WordPress. You can have... You can have very good WordPress sites and you can have terrible WordPress sites. It's not because it's WordPress. Same with any platform. I've seen brilliant Magento sites and terrible ones. Yeah, perfect. In terms of URL structure for retailers, what is the importance for SEO in terms of URL structure? Uh, actually pretty low um, in terms of direct importance. So having, for instance, keywords in your URL isn't really much of a ranking factor, like tiny, tiny, almost undetectable if it is. However, big passive bonus is that anchor text, which is the text people use in a link to a page is really important, like really important for if how that page is gonna rank. And most links that, that are naturally created online are just kind of like the raw URL. If you have your URL you know, with the product name, with hyphens between, for instance, Google understands hyphens are delimiters between words. If people paste that raw URL, search engines then get a better idea of what that following page is going to contain because you've kind of got the correct anchor text in the URL. So again, careful answer. As a direct ranking factor, meh, not really important. Should you do it? Yes, because there's like passive benefits to doing that that will stack up over time. And optimization is the sum of all of these small things that give you the edge. Mark, meta titles, uh, some people use bars to separate words. Some people use hyphens. Some people include brand name. Is there a rule of thumb that says do or do not use uh, this as opposed to that? No, no. Like, till bars, whatever you like, hyphens, it's fine. <laughs> Perfect. Breadcrumb, tra 
breadcrumb trails, the importance of breadcrumb trails on product pages and, and within sites in general, are breadcrumb trails as important for search or is it purely just for usability? Um, it, it's mainly, uh, it, I'd say it's mainly a usability thing, user experience thing. Um, it does show though in the search results. So you've got schema for breadcrumbs. Um, need special thinking about if you've got products maybe in multiple categories as to which breadcrumb you show if they haven't taken a particular route so if they just land on that product page and that product's in three categories which breadcrumb do you show um but again certainly worth doing because all of these things you can set them up they kind of you know they, they do themselves automatically and they scale well um from the search page, you're giving the user the information maybe as to, okay, that wasn't what I was looking for, but I can see from this breadcrumb, it's in this category. So they obviously sell more of that thing. So again, it's it's one of those things, it's, it's pretty much no effort to do. Um, and there are sort of various small benefits, but it's not going to make or break you. Similar question, but around product reviews and product recommendations, again, more for user experience or more for search? Depends on the content of the review, really. Um, interestingly, so for local rankings, map packs, Google My Business reviews actually do help determine what you rank for. So if you are selling, like you said earlier, your gym wear and you have lots of people writing reviews about your brilliant gym wear, Google does seem to show you for more local searches to do a gym wear. Um, you can, again, mark up... Um, specific product reviews which is helpful um, with average review ratings but for me that's more of a again there's a whole bunch of things that do impact seo but it's because they're good for the user and therefore they're primarily like user concerns so like the whole core web vitals thing to me core web vitals isn't really an seo thing it's like a look make your site good for users it affects conversion rates it literally affects the money that you're going to generate and as it happens it will impact how well you rank and that's where that falls into me with like things like product reviews they're very important um but more so for users mark final question for today as a retailer listening in the next six months what should you look out for in the seo landscape that's on the horizon <laughs> that's a, that's a really interesting question i think personally i wouldn't get too entrenched in worrying what google is changing or not changing in terms of the algorithm so i you know we call that algorithm chasing and the best thing you can possibly do is understand google's business model which is basically they want good organic results because it makes people use their search engine and it means that they make their 100 billion uh, on their Google ads because people use a search engine, right? So you need to align your long-term SEO strategy to make, uh, you know, to help Google hit its goals of making more money. Um, if you're algorithm chasing, trying to find the cracks and essentially getting your content to punch above its weight, you have to be aware it's a short-term thing. Um, you eventually will lose rankings when the algorithm kind of catches up with you. So that's that's what I'd say. As, as a business owner, as a retailer, I would definitely take a long-term view. Um, and if I was engaging with anyone to do SEO, they, they would be my questions around how long-term is the strategy and questions about how resilient the kind of activity you're doing is going to be to Google updates. Mark, absolutely extraordinary as always. Thank you. For those that are listening today, I hope that you've enjoyed today's session. Please do keep your questions coming in and we'll do our best to answer them on our next catch up with SEO for e-commerce brands with again, Mark Williams Cook from Candor. Now, before we go today, just a quick little shout out, Mark. If anyone is looking to uh, get involved with SEO for their e-commerce business, or perhaps it's not an e-commerce business, but you've tuned in today uh, to find out more about Mark and his agency, where can they go to find out more about you guys, Mark? Yes, if you just search for Canda Agency, uh, we'll be there. You'll be able to see the kind of work we've done. Um, I'm quite active on LinkedIn. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure actually I'm like the only Mark Williams cook if you Google me. Uh, so I'm active on LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm always up for um, kind of talking to people if they've got questions about SEO. Um, on LinkedIn, I post SEO uh, one SEO tip every day, Monday to Friday. Um, so there's loads of free stuff you can get there. Have a conversation with me about it. Um, but yeah, check out the site. It's the main place if you're interested in, in what we do or, or SEO. Final thing, Mark, just how many SEO tips have you done? Because you said, oh, I, I do a bit of content <laughs> on LinkedIn. I'm pretty sure there's several hundred. 
yeah, we've just just gone over 500 now. So I, I'm pretty sure it's the biggest list that exists. <laughs> <laughs> so do um, go and check it out, folks. Yeah. It's a fantastic resource. Mark is always very generous with his time, as he has been here this morning. Mark, lovely to see you as always. Thank you for your time. You, mate. And we look forward to seeing you again on the next episode. Thanks again. That was a bit longer than usual, but I hope you enjoyed it and got something from it. As usual, I'm going to be back like clockwork in one week's time on Monday, the 14th of June. Do subscribe to the podcast if you're enjoying it. Do tell a friend, all that nice stuff. And I hope you have an absolutely wonderful week.